only source of true delight whom I unseen adore Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more Oh that I might love thee more You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Scripture reading today is found in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. If you want to follow along in the blue pew Bible, it's on page 941. Romans three twenty one through 31 the righteousness of God through faith. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although, although the law of the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The word of God. In great need of God's grace, as we come to his word, let us pray. Lord, we thank you that having given this word by the Holy Spirit, having drawn us to yourself by the Spirit and planted our hearts and faith in Jesus Christ. It is your intention, your purpose, that you will continue to grow us, even as we've just read. You who began a good work in us will continue to the day of Christ Jesus. O Lord, according to your promise, continue that work in our hearts now. As Lord Jesus, you opened up the minds of the disciples to understand the word there in Luke 24, and there in Acts 16, opened up Lydia's heart to receive the things spoken by Paul. Open up our hearts, Lord. Open up our whole lives to your word, that we may walk in different ways, think in different ways, believe in different ways, love and trust in different ways, by your grace and your word. Bless us to your glory and honor, we pray. Amen. One of the benefits that Kay and I have received from 
our daughter's marriage is 600 acres of land up in Jacksboro, Texas, excuse me. Um, I wish so much that my mother, excuse me, I can't clear my throat for making you sit to hear it. I've wanted my mother real badly, who was raised in West Texas, to be able to go out on that land because it's so beautiful. And the interesting thing about the land is the more you are on it and the more you walk around it, and especially what I've done is four-wheeling, you know, around uh, in little patches of uh, trees, stands of trees along. There's a rock wall that we haven't yet explored that's overgrown that runs several hundred yards, and who knows what's around that. And... Uh, of course, if you're a hunter, you can get turkey or deer or any number of things, kill a coyote here and there. Uh, they've done all of this. And then the sunsets are amazing. There's a ridge that just just is set. It's just set. I think they're going to put their cabin out there. They're living in a trailer right now to get ready to build that. But um, it, it looks like they're going to put it right on that ridge so that just so we can come up and spend the afternoons there. Uh, <laughs> But um, and then at night, of course, the the stars are just breathtaking. You, you, you know what that is to really get out there and see them. And funny, they were they go around sometimes at night, taking Lila, who's our almost three year old granddaughter, to look at animals. You know, just to shine the light on them. And so this one night, they were looking at deer and had seen uh, quite a few deer. Oh, thank you, Don. Try not to gargle right in front of you. But um, they had seen quite a few deer, and Anna Kate was trying to get Lila's attention there in their big diesel truck, you know. And so uh, she was. She said, "Lila, Lila," and Lila's just staring outside. Lila, 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 turn to me. I want to tell you something. And Lila says, "Mama, I'm finding deer." You know, Anna Kate loved it. It's like, don't you realize I'm doing something so important? I don't need to listen to you right now. I'm finding deer. Well, it's a good analogy, I think, for this term that stands at the head of this passage that we read, the righteousness of God. It's a term that the more you explore it, the richer it gets the deeper it goes, the higher it soars. It's so should be because, as Paul has introduced this whole letter, which is a summary of his gospel, he says, this gospel, I'm not ashamed of it, because it's the power of God for salvation. Chapter 1, verse 16. Why is it the power of God for salvation? Because the righteousness of God is revealed in it. And so for Paul, this is the essence of the gospel, the good news. This summarizes in some way everything that he wants to say about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we should expect then that this gospel named by Paul, summarized as the righteousness of God, must be uh, a thing that goes on and on because in another place Paul says this, To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so the unsearchable riches of Christ is the content of the gospel, which can be summarized as 
The righteousness of God has been revealed. It must be a rich term. Well, also, a rich term like this, a term that, as you look at it in different perspectives, it has so many facets. Sometimes the church has gotten caught in looking at one of those facets and not the whole. And so, one of the things I want to try to do this morning is to back off and help, although we've talked a good bit about the righteousness of God, to to look at it afresh and, and see how big the term is. The reason is this. Many times you'll find uh, an approach to the righteousness of God to say, well, it means one thing in chapter 3, verse 5, where he says, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, that means one kind of righteousness. Then in chapter 3, verse 21, righteousness of God, that's a different kind of righteousness. Or in verse 26, when he says that he might be, and this is actually the word righteous here, and the word just and justifier are also from this word righteousness. So they have to do with the same thing. If we had similar words in English, it would, we would read, so that he might be righteous and the righteouser of those who have faith in Jesus. So this term righteousness of God is a huge term and it embraces a lot of aspects of what God does and how he acts. So uh, this is what we're going to go for. Now, uh, originally, at the Reformation, one of the chief interpretations of this word that Luther himself said was what he learned from his teachers, his instructors, was the justice of God. The, this is partly because as the Greek was translated into the Latin, the Vulgate Latin, the, the term was justitia dei, justice of God. And this went into other translations into other languages, the justice of God. And so, here's what Luther says in writing about this very thing. He said, I read it was, I read it in this, in the justice of God is revealed, that stood in my way, he said. And when we see the righteousness of God is revealed or that the, the gospel is about the righteousness of God, Luther says, that stood in my way. For I hated that word, justice of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically of the formal or active justice, as they called it, by which God is just and punishes sinners and the unjust. And so for, for Luther, reading Romans was not a comforting thing. Because he would keep coming to that term, the justice of God, and it would put him off from God. It would make him, he, he would read that as the, the punitive justice of God. Uh, the, the God of retribution. The God whose wrath is poured out. And so, the, the Reformation really was born in Luther's understanding changing from it being the justice of God to the righteous status of a person that God acts for. That is, the righteous status that God confers on us by faith. Now, that's a very different approach to that that term. The justice of God, which is going to condemn me, ultimately, or this righteous status that I can have put to my account that God would declare me 
acquitted, declare me forgiven, declare me accepted in his courtroom. And he would convey that new status of righteousness to me. And I only have to trust him for it. You could see if, if you change a view of God that radically from a God that by and large you feel like you have to hide from and run from and constantly appeased by this ritual and that ritual and suddenly it's all swept away and you find out, wait a minute, you mean by I can bring all of my sin before him? I can simply confess it all to him and trust in the work of Jesus Christ who has taken away sin and he will justify me? He will declare me righteous? Yes. And so the Reformation was born in Luther's new understanding of this term. But as we have continued to explore this term, to use our analogy to explore the 600 acres you know, of my uh, daughter and son-in-law's land, we see a richer term, not to leave this out at all, In fact, this is one of the climactic accomplishments of the righteousness of God. But rather than seeing it only as the status into which God brings us, the Old Testament background teaches us that the righteousness of God is God's own saving activity by which he rescues his people. So rather than reading every time the righteousness of God is revealed, that is, this new status that he brings us is revealed, it means the very righteous acting of God on behalf of the world is revealed. God's powerful saving activity for sinners is revealed. And it includes the work of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection and his lordship. And it includes God's action through the gospel to bring us into a righteous condition and a righteous status. So you see, it doesn't leave out the status part, but it embraces that in a big picture of this God who acts in righteousness and it's revealed fully in the gospel. And as we'll talk about a little bit, this righteous activity has as its final goal the restoration of the whole earth. The restoration of all things. With a whole new humanity on a whole new earth, all of sin and curse taken away. So you see, the righteousness of God, that's why it's so... Uh, it's put up front as the essence of everything practically to say in the good news because in the revelation of the righteousness of God is finally the restoration of the whole of creation itself. The righteousness of God. Well, I want to look at two things this morning about the righteousness of God. The first of is this saving activity And I want to get to a few things I hope that will help us to uh, trust in that saving activity more. And then I want to look at his uh, integrity that is shown forth in his righteousness. The righteousness of God, as we're going to see, is fundamentally... It's interesting how John Piper uh, gives us the righteousness of God. Though not a lot of people would follow this exact terminology, it helps us get at something at his righteousness. It's God's... Desire to glorify his name, 
to make his name known. Now, I think this is a good definition because listen to what Psalm 143 says. For your namesake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. So in two parallel passages, two parallel lines, he says, act in your righteousness, act for your namesake. I think this is what gives us the big picture of the righteousness of God. It's really God manifesting his character, manifesting his name, showing forth who he is as the mighty God. And certainly in the gospel, he does that. Certainly in the work of Jesus Christ, it is a manifestation of the glory and majesty of God. Both his holiness and his love, every aspect of his character, bursts forth through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so here's God in his righteousness making himself known. But one aspect of that is his saving activity. And in this, he shows that he is faithful to his promises. In his saving activity, in his righteousness, it means that he is faithful to his promises. Faithful to his covenant with Israel. That's why, in many cases, the word righteousness is parallel to the word faithfulness. In fact, in Psalm 40, verse 9, the... uh, The ESV translates this word righteousness as deliverance because it seems that that's a better translation. But it's really the word righteousness. Most of the translations give righteousness. But I'm going to read the NIV because it helps. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips as you know, O Lord. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your salvation. I do not conceal your love and your truth. So truth, being steady and constant, being faithful uh, to say that's his righteousness. Or listen to the end of Nehemiah 9.8. You have kept your promise. Why? Because you're righteous. You're righteous. You always keep your promises. You always follow through with what you say you'll do. Because you're true to yourself. You're true to your word. You're true to your promise. You're true to your covenant. Which basically means he's true to his character. He's true to who he is. Because his word always is a declaration of what he is and what he intends to do. Douglas Moo says, it's consistency always acting in accordance with his own character. His fidelity to his promises. Now, I love this early father, Ambrosiaster, speaks of it in this way. And this really helps us to, I think, welcome his righteousness or justice, the way he puts this. He says that it is called the justice of God or the righteousness of God because he has given what he has promised. The Latin is quod, uh, quod promisit dedit. What he promised, he gave. He said, that's his righteousness. Whatever he promises, he gives because he's righteous. And he goes on to say, it is said to be justice and righteousness that he shows mercy 
In fact, they almost seem parallel. And we don't have time, but the words graciousness and merciful and loving kindness are used in parallel with righteousness. So it is God's powerful action in love and grace and mercy. But listen to this. It's so encouraging to me. When he welcomes those who take refuge in him, it is said to be righteous because not to welcome those who seek refuge, iniquitous is, is iniquity. Now, get the parallel. We think, for instance, with Haiti, what if nobody had done anything for Haiti? Just think. No ships came. No doctors came, no rescue boats, no planes, nothing came. What would you think of the world? Pretty sick world, right? Pretty sick, cold-hearted law. I mean, we would, it'd be an abomination. You'd think, who are the demons that would just leave these people to suffer? And you get Ambrosiaster's point here. He says, it's called the righteousness of God. Because it would be wrong not to take in people who who come to you for refuge. And that encourages me so much. It it also, as we talked about last week, helps us understand that passage in 1 John where he says, If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just or righteous to forgive you your sins. And I want to encourage you with this to say, Do you think if... We human beings and perhaps many, most of the people who are going down to Haiti aren't necessarily Christians, right? They're just human beings that show decency and spend themselves when people need help. And Ambrosiaster's point is this, that God would be unrighteous not to receive those who take refuge in him, especially when he has acted to provide refuge. And then he commands you and welcomes you to take refuge in him, in his son. How glorious this righteous God acting on your behalf, acting through his son to atone for sin, acting through his son to appease wrath and to redeem his people. And then calling upon you, trust in my son, take him as your refuge. Can we doubt That he'll take us in? Can we doubt that this righteous, just God would act more terribly than the world toward Haiti? What kind of God would that be? And yet, you know, that's the kind of God we concoct in our heads. It really is. I'm so sinful. I'm so lost. I've been, I've got such motives in my heart. I'm so inconsistent. We can come up with all the reasons why God shouldn't accept us and receive us. And of course, the other side of that sometimes is that we hardly have even begun to see how terribly we do need His grace. We're so light-hearted about sin. We don't see it as an attack against God. We don't see our unbelief, our lack of trust in God. We don't see the fact that God is not the absolute treasure of my life as being heinous and worthy of wrath and judgment. So that's another side of things. But this is such an encouraging thing. The righteousness of God acting 
and not pushing us away as the justice of God did Luther, but the righteousness of God actually being a reason to come to him, he will act righteously. He has acted righteously in Christ. He has done a glorious thing for helpless people. If, if, if the human race is going to rescue Haiti, I assure you, God has come to rescue his people. And God welcomes you to take refuge in him. The thing that God speaks out against is that you would take refuge in anything else but God. That you would find your treasure in anyone but him, in anything but him. That you would think your sin could be taken care of by your own doing and not by taking refuge in Jesus Christ. It's the only place of safety. And God has gone to the ultimate sacrifice of giving his own son to provide that place of safety for you. I think for time's sake, I'm going to not talk about the other aspect of his righteousness, which brings us to verses 25 and 26, but I'll talk about that some next week. I'll just shorthand you this, that many times there's several different ways to, or or commentators say, one uh, use of righteousness is different than another. And I want to show some next week at this idea of God being true to his character and acting in integrity to his covenant promises means that he is righteous in judging sin, but he is righteous in justifying sinners at the same time. So we'll talk some more about that. But I want to close with just some further application and encouragement about the declaration of being righteous in his sight. Notice you've got the righteousness of God manifested in verse 21. This righteousness of God mentioned in verse 22, that we're to trust in this God of righteousness. And and it's for all who believe this righteous action of God. And then you have this phrase in verse 24 and in 28, that we are justified by his grace as a gift. Or in verse 28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And so in God's righteousness to act for our behalf and to bring us into a place of safety and wholeness, he has acted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we trust him, he, he declares that we are in a righteous condition in front of him, before him. We're in a righteous state before him. We have favor before God. This is a law court term in which we are declared that it's declared we are acquitted from all of our sins. We are declared in union with Christ to be covered in the righteousness that God has. In our union with Christ, our sin is no longer put to our account. He explores this further in chapter 4 when he says, To one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And here in verse 5, the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly. He justifies us though we are ungodly. And he does not count our sins against us as he quotes from Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, from Psalm 32. Now, several things I want to mention, and this 
the righteousness of God helps us understand this. When He justifies us, when He declares us righteous and under His favor, when He declares that His smile is upon us, it means that we are admitted into the full life and salvation of God immediately. That doesn't mean that we are made perfect in any way. We grow for our whole lives. But there's not a two-stage thing where God justifies us and then something else happens. But when He declares us to be accepted in Christ Jesus, we are immediately made heirs of everything that God has won for us. We are immediately brought into the full life of God because He is acting in His full righteousness to give us this. This is why in Romans chapter 5, he says, having been justified, we have peace with God. And then he says, we've obtained access into this grace. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, the final glory of God. He says, having been justified, we have immediate communion and peace with God and we have hope of the glory of God in the end. We have everything through this justification. So when justification brings you into the favor of God, you have his full favor. You have everything in Christ Jesus. Isn't it interesting in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 when he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Okay, All condemnation has been taken away. All condemnation has been poured out on Christ and not you. There is no condemnation for you. Only favor That whole chapter ends with, and nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. See? And in the middle, it talks about your sonship. It talks about being an heir with Christ. It talks about how all things will work together in your life. It talks about how the whole of creation will be renewed one day and we will be revealed in glory. It talks about the whole scope of history In the wake of saying, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Well, that's just not an isolated thing. You're you're not condemned. Oh, good. I'm uh, I'm glad I'm not condemned. You're not condemned, which changes the whole course of human history and your course of human history. It creates a whole new community and nothing will separate you ultimately from the uh, love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And it means that there's an immediate transformation in our lives as well. Having his favor means that I will now have his life and I will begin to be transformed. You get a feel for this in verse 23 uh, at the fall in Genesis chapter 3. We don't have time to read the passages, but this is a reflection of that idea of losing our image of God, losing our likeness to God, and therefore losing fellowship with this God because he cannot have fellowship with those that are not like him. And certainly we will not enter into glory to be with that God. There's no way. We've lost our likeness. We've lost our fellowship. We've lost our hope of ever being with God and enjoying his glory. So he says that's why there must be Redemption, that's why there must be justification. Being readmitted into the favor of God and immediately is the process of restoring the image of God, His glory into your life. You see, His favor means everything. 
That's why in Romans 8, he speaks of our being, that, that, that God, before the foundation of the world, predestined, chapter 8, that those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And later he calls it being glorified. So you see, being res- the restoration of image means being glorified in the end being restored to our glory. And I think that's part of why he says it right here. We've lost the glory of God. And here God is restoring that glory by restoring us to his favor. And if we're restored to his favor, we're restored to his life and his fellowship. It means we're immediately begun to be transformed into his image. How glorious is that? God is not just uh, static the justification is not simply the, the, the fact that we're admitted into his presence. If we're admitted into his presence, it means everything for us. That favor means his life and it means final transformation. That's why in 2 Corinthians 3, it talks about being changed into the image of Christ from glory to glory. It's part of his language. He talks about the new self that we have in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 that's made after the image of God. And so I want to urge you to rejoice in this justification from God, this declaration of being in his favor and realize something of the implication for what he's doing for you what He has already begun to do for you, what He will do for you to restore you to His image because you have been restored to the very life of God in this. And a final encouragement, it is irrevocable once God has justified you. It is unassailable once God has justified you. It's because God is the one who does it. And that's His point in Romans 8, which we'll get to in the full later. But he's trying to encourage people in Romans 8. He says, who can be against us? Who can bring an accusation against us? In the courtroom of God, who's going to speak out? It's God that justifies. How glorious is that? And that speaks of God's righteousness, you see. The powerful saving activity of God, where the God of the universe in recreating the world declares, you are righteous before me. You are under my favor. And all the world is silenced. Nobody can say anything. Because God has declared it so. And then it's personal. Because Christ, the righteousness is in Christ. Paul goes on to say, who's going to condemn you? Because Christ is at the right hand of God. Christ is the one who died. He's at the right hand of God. He's interceding for us. Brothers and sisters, you're as likely to be condemned as Jesus Christ if you trust in him. Because you're united to him. You're united to Christ. He owns you for himself. And so, being united to Christ, God can say, my full favor is upon you. And as I've said many times, as he embraces his son, he embraces you. He must embrace you as he embraces his son because you are his body. You're the very body of Christ. You belong to him. And so, be encouraged. 
Be encouraged to believe in this righteous God who will not turn you away, who will bring you in and give you refuge, who transforms you and with his favor gives you his life and no one can assail it. No one can turn it away. Nothing will separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we praise your great name. We lift you up, O Lord, in your great action on behalf of your people. Lord, we thank you, praise you for your righteousness. As Isaiah and the psalmists praise so many times for your righteousness. And we confess sometimes that has put us off because... It seems like if you act righteously, Lord, and justly, we would be condemned. And yet here is God acting righteously, faithfully to rescue us. Sending in the boats and the planes and the doctors and sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to work a rescue in which The only hope of rescue was his death. Oh, Lord, having given your son, how can we refuse him? How can we turn away? How can we not run to him for refuge? And yet, Lord, we all know in the words of the hymnist that were, were it not for your grace, I would have rather starved than come. Oh, Lord, that's how hard-hearted I am. That's how much I refuse your mercy and don't see my need of it. That were it not for you working in my heart, I would still have refused to come and I would have starved. Oh, Lord, if there are those this morning who have not trusted in Christ, who have not run to you for refuge, draw them now, we pray. Draw them. Show forth the glory of Christ in their hearts. They may run to this great God of righteousness. But they will rest in you so that you would act for them now, throughout their lives and forever. We pray this, Lord, for your glory. Amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. My Lord, my life, my light Oh, come with blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?